Welcome to the Inking of Immunity podcast. I am one of your trusty co-hosts, Chris Lynn from the University of Alabama. I am here with Mike and Becky. Hey, Becky. Hey, Chris. How are you? Good. Hey, Mike. Hey, everybody. And we are interviewing Lane Wilkin today. Lane is a cultural tattoo practitioner in an ancient Filipino style. He's a Filipino-American working in Las Vegas, Nevada, and has been uh, researching indigenous tattooing in the Philippines and Pacific for over three decades. He is widely recognized by the Filipino-American community as Mamba Batok, a cultural tattoo practitioner using ancient hand tap techniques. So your title is, is it Manong Lane? Manong Lane. Manong, Manong Lane? Yeah. Is that the appropriate way to address you? Um, not for you. That's usually for people that are younger than me. It's just an honorific. Okay. You, you can so just call it, me Lane. It's fine. So that's like when I say, please stop calling me Dr. Lynn. Just call me Chris. Is that yeah. kind of? Okay. So uh, Lane and I met in 2018 at the Northwest Tatal Festival in Seattle, where, where I was collecting data for our biological research project on tattooing and health. But uh, today we want to, you know, I want to sort of revisit who you are and sort of get to know you again via the podcast so that we can share that with everybody else. So how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm excellent. I'm excellent. Um, How have you held up during the the pandemic? A lot has happened since I saw you last. Yeah, it's it's been a little bit of a roller coaster up and down. We've had to slow down how many people we work with, especially with the, the limitations during the pandemic and make sure that everyone that comes through is uh, COVID clear before we actually tattoo them. But uh, we've been able to do some work during the pandemic, so very fortunate to be able to keep working right now. Could you just tell us a bit firstly about your training and about your background? Well, um, my ethnic background from the Philippines is a little bit diverse. I am primarily Ilocano, and this is from the northern island of the Philippines, but there are several different ethnic communities up there, uh, of which I belong to a few, and a little bit hard to enumerate all those at the moment. But uh, yeah, I'm mostly Ilocano. My father is of English and Scandinavian origin. I'm a mixie, if you will. And my trainings didn't really start, I never intended to tattoo. Let me just put it that way. I, I started out just uh, doing research for my own interests in uh, wanting to get markings of my own that were from my ethnic groups and uh, just started collecting information on my own. And eventually the, that information became papers and papers have now become books. And then the community began asking me for uh, ritual tattooing and uh, finding that there wasn't a whole lot of people to be able to do that. uh, I started tattooing the diasporic community here in the United States. My training uh, started, I guess, with uh, the Suluwape family. Suluwape, uh, he kind of took me under his wing, became one of my first mentors. And then uh, later, uh, Sua Kione of Hawaii. He also helped me recover the tools that had been uh, 
Well, they're basically extinct in the Philippines, but helping me recreate the bone tools that our people used to have. And since there isn't anybody currently alive to be able to, to help me recreate those uh, bone implements, uh, luckily for us, our cousins in Hawaii were generous enough to teach me how to do that. And so I've been tattooing now uh, going on 10 years, and I was really fortunate to meet uh, Chris uh, a few years ago. That was a cool event. It was a cool event. So um, just to sort of unpack a little bit about about what you said, um, so you, you refer to having a, a variety of ethnicities in, in your background. And so I, I'm curious if when we say Filipino, is that a colonial representation of a bunch of different ethnic groups? And I know that your work relates to markings that are affiliated with specific ethnic groups. So again, when, I, when you say Filipino tattoo, is that is that sort of a gloss of, of something that didn't really exist? Or was there a Filipino ethnic group that sort of come to encompass everyone? Or, Well, Filipino is just a nationalistic term. It's not necessarily an ethnic group. So if you ask a person what their ethnic group and they say Filipino, it's really a misnomer. We have over 100 different languages in the Philippines and different ethnic groups to go along with those uh, languages. So I belong to... Uh, about five different ethnic groups from the Philippines. And each of those ethnic groups has, uh, well, anciently would have different tattooing arrangements, designs sometimes. Uh, sometimes it's just the placement of those designs or the size or the orientation of those designs that differentiates it from one ethnic group to the other. And then other ethnic groups have their own unique designs that they use in their tattooing. So... We don't necessarily always hear from folks that we talk to that their journey started off doing research and, and papers. When, was this an academic pursuit for you at first, or was that a totally a personal journey? Or how, how did you venture to start doing your own research? That's a big endeavor. Well, the way it started is I was uh, living in Hawaii at 19 years old. I lived over there for a few years. And during that time, this was in the early, early 90s, uh, late 80s, early 90s, and the Hawaiian tattoo renaissance was just maybe in its infancy at the time. and But, you know, the Samoans over there had these beautiful markings, and I was enamored by it. And as well as other cultural nuances of Polynesian culture. But not wanting to appropriate something that wasn't mine, you know, just go and get a Polynesian tattoo. It started me on wanting to do research, uh, mainly for my own gratification, my own personal journey. But uh, like I mentioned earlier, eventually my little spiral-bound notebooks full of information, uh, those became papers. And uh, then I kind of collected all this information. My apprentices call it my opus. (laughs) But uh, I took chapters out of that opus and began developing them into books. And so, yeah, my, my route was more academic or scholarly in the beginning, but there's a certain point, I think, where, and I, I don't mean to throw any shade on anybody or anything like that as academics, but there's a certain point where experiential understanding of this practice is a lot more important yeah. uh, because all of our practices throughout the Pacific in terms of tattooing are inherently spiritual in nature. And so mm-hmm. there, there's this crossover where uh, you have to go beyond the intellectual to really understand it. It has to be experiential. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think. I think. I think it must be really hard for anyone to understand the significance of of those rituals without 
without having experienced it. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So you, you mentioned there about basically this, you know, it started off as a very academic pursuit um, before you started experiencing this yourself. And I just wondered whether it was, I guess, whether it was your own heritage that got you interested in Filipino tattooing specifically? Oh, definitely. Definitely. It's it's interesting being being Filipino, especially in the United States, uh, where you have this very strong push by first generation people that migrate over here to assimilate into the dominant culture. And being a mixie, if you will, you know, uh, it's it's even more trepidatious sometimes navigating those circles because you're not always accepted as one or the other. Uh, yeah. But there's also this sense of, you know, what what can you hang on to uh, in terms of cultural identity when you live in the diaspora? Um, those of us that grow up in the diaspora, we don't necessarily uh, fully relate to the modern Filipino culture. I mean, and then what is there to be proud of? You know, eating lumpia or, you know, cheering on Mani Pacquiao we often are looking for something deeper, you know, something yeah. deeper to connect to. And one of those things that really resonates, especially with the diasporic community is tattooing. A lot of times I have uh, the recipients that come through their their interests first started with being similar to me, enamored with Polynesian tattooing and wondering if we have something of our own. And so that's kind of where I I kind of step in with our community is to help them recover the markings that their people once had. And again, with that huge diversity of ethnic groups in the Philippines, there's still so much work that's left to be done. I mean, 30 years of research is nothing but a drop in the bucket compared to literally thousands of years of tattooing that happened in our islands. And just for uh, just for reference, uh, there was an excavation done in the Cagayan Valley, which is in Northern Luzon of the Philippines, where they excavated a burial cave and found tattooing implements, bone tattooing implements that have been carbon dated at close to 4,000 years old. And that's the medium between the two ranges that they find. So the practice is at least that old, if not older. That's just what we've been able to recover in that excavation. So, you know, you think about- Can I I really quickly ask you, were those the perpendicularly hafted tools, like the the hand tapping tools like you all are using now? Yes, wow. they're perpendicularly okay. hafted uh, tools. At least that, that's what we theorize based on the shape of the combs. Uh, that's the thing is that after 4,000 years, wood doesn't hang out. It doesn't last very long. And so based on the shape of the tools, the combs, the, the bone combs or, or needles, we, with a fair amount of uh, certainty, feel like they were perpendicularly hafted tools. Plus we have other examples of perpendicularly hafted tools currently in the Philippines, in the north, all the way down into Mindanao. So I'm, I'm interested in what, uh, what took you to, to Hawaii? You said you were living in Hawaii at the age of 19 when you kind of started this journey. What, what brought you there? What were you doing there? <laughs> well, of all the strange uh, things, I was there as a Mormon missionary. <laughs> and so I was there uh, for a couple of years and... You can thank the Mormon Church for my budding interest in uh, 
in tattooing by being sent to Hawaii. You don't really get a choice when you do that, but uh, just in complete uh, transparency, I've since left the Mormon church, but that kind of facilitated my exit as well as being exposed to all of this. That's so uh, interesting. (laughs) you're You're not allowed to be tattooed as a Mormon, are you? Well, it is highly discouraged, although they do kind of turn a little bit of a blind eye towards Polynesian tattooing because they uh, mm. they believe that Polynesians are lost Israelites, but uh, DNA studies would quickly disprove that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of Mormons in American Samoa, and when I was there, oh, yeah. uh, there was a guy in our study uh, getting tattooed, and all his friends were in there hanging out with him, and we're like, oh, you guys next? Oh, no, we're Mormon. We're not, we're not allowed to get tattooed, but we love tattooing. So they're all hanging out, like watching and, and learning. So it was, it was hilarious. I got that, I got that sense of a, a bit of a letting down that rule a little bit there. Yeah. So um, I, I wanted to hear more about the importance of practice because of the spiritual nature of tattooing. Yes. And this is something that gets left behind in almost every anthropological treatment of tattooing that I've ever read. And so I really love to hear more about this if, if you if you are able to if it's not something that but that is private but um, it, it fascinated me and, I, and I'm really interested in how people are prepared for what is relatively painful experience and, and, and sort of what you do to set set that up for folks. Well, if you think about it, you know with all tattooing cultures, like you mentioned Chris, there are, there is that spiritual component that often gets overlooked. And I had to research, actually, the ancient culture of the Philippines because the modern culture isn't necessarily representative of of the culture that created the designs. And so to be able to fully understand our tattooing, you have to understand the culture it comes from. And when you look at uh, oral traditions, for example, and ritual practices, all of these things kind of coalesce and are represented in the tattooing, uh, cosmological concepts, uh, taboos, as well as the things that anthropologists tend to like. They tend to gravitate towards things like marks of rank and identity. Yeah, that is a component. Those are components of it. Uh, Marks of inclusion, those are components, but uh, ultimately the practice is spiritual, and that's why there are taboos around it. Uh, I will not share anything that is uh, t- that is taboo, but most of this is what I would call sacred, not secret. So oftentimes it's hard to discuss things with an anthropologist, for example, that may not have the full cultural context of the design. So you have to understand the cultural context of the design to really understand the meaning. Because, yeah, uh, yeah, this is... You know, this is a sun. That's obvious. But why? Why the sun? Why is that important? You know, those are the questions that we have to ask. And then ultimately, we find that the sun is related to an ancestor or a deity. And then what does that deity look like? How is that deity venerated? What importance is that deity in everyday life? Uh, Is that deity associated to, to specific roles? And is it appropriate for that person to have that a representation of that deity based on what they do in this life? You know, if they don't fulfill that particular role, then it's inappropriate. So those are some of the things that we have to kind of uh, vet with a person before 
we even give markings? Do they even belong to the ethnic group that that design belongs to? If they don't, then it's not appropriate. Um, anyway, those are some of the considerations that, that we go through in the process of um, not necessarily vetting people, but making sure that what we do is appropriate for them and their ancestors. Because from a spiritual perspective, I am ultimately responsible to their ancestors to do what is correct for the descendant. Uh, if I don't, I'm, I'm going to meet a lot of people on the other side that are unhappy with me, so to speak. So, uh, yeah, um, if you have a, more specific questions, um, feel free to shoot them at me. Yeah, I've, I've got, I, I was just wondering, so if you have someone coming to you that that may not know of their specific ethnic heritage or where their ancestors came from, what do you do in that case? Well, I give guidance in the process, I would say. Um, I don't necessarily do the research for them. Uh, that would be a lot of work that I don't have time for. But I encourage people to do their genealogy, for example. Uh, as far back as they can anyway, find out where their people originally came from, what language they spoke. Barring that, um, like in the case of Filipino adoptees, they do DNA tests, and that gives us a, a rough general idea of what region of the Philippines they come from, and that gives us a good idea of the ethnicity. So yeah, they, they have to do their due diligence before they come to me. Yeah, that's all part of the work, right? Yeah. So as, as Chris pointed out in your introduction, you are a, a cultural tattoo practitioner. I'm interested in what, what does that mean to you and what do you see are the differences between a, a cultural practitioner and a tattoo artist? One of the main differences is the paradigm. Uh, in Western tattooing or modern tattooing, the focus is on the individual. It's uh, their story, their re representations of themselves, self-expression, their own artistic expression or the uh, personal expression of that particular tattoo artist. is very singularly or individually minded in Western tattooing. But in cultural tattooing, it's more about the community that you belong to. The recipient doesn't necessarily choose the designs at all. That's up to the practitioner. It's kind of like uh, if you go to a doctor, for example, you don't go in and say, hey, doc, I got brain cancer. Sign me up for chemo and radiation. You're not the expert. You don't know what's best. You don't know what the treatment is. And so uh, what's interesting, since we're talking about inking of immunity, there are the, the Mamba Batuk traditionally is a spiritual leader of sorts and is able to divine which of the designs are most appropriate to affect them physically, spiritually emotionally, uh, what's the best medicine for that person to receive? And so when people come to me for work, I am doing the designs based on their community that they belong to. And I choose all the designs. Um, most of the time, because we live in the Western world, I will ask if they have a preferred placement. And as long as it is culturally appropriate for their ethnic group, I'll take it into consideration. But we try to keep it as close to the original placements and arrangements as possible that we know of anciently, because I, I don't want to be so arrogant as to overly modify the practice without uh, a full understanding of everything that goes into it. You know, there are things that I still don't know. Uh, again, 30 years is a drop in the bucket compared to thousands of years of tattooing. 
And we've also found that in some regions of the Philippines that the designs seem to have a correlation to the way the Chinese understand uh, meridian lines and acupuncture points in the body. We also did medicinal tattooing that is specifically for physical ailments. And so, you know, there are these things that we have to take into consideration and not allow ourselves to get arrogant. You know, I don't want to ever claim that I'm the be-all, end-all of Filipino tattooing. Uh, that would be arrogant on my part. So the main difference, uh, going back to your question, Michael, I get on tangents, sorry. But uh, I, uh, I, I think the main difference is that uh, one is individually minded and one is community minded. So you mentioned tattoos for, for healing and health, and I'm a biocultural medical anthropologist. One of the main things I'm interested in is health outcomes. And, and I've, in the course of doing this research, had a lot of folks tell me about different practices like this. So I, I was curious, one, what sort of health tattoos there are in Filipino tattooing and, and have you done them? Are you, is this an active part of the work that you do? So referencing what I was mentioning earlier about how certain placements and designs uh, correlate with Chinese medicine's understanding of meridian lines in the body. Uh, me and one of my other apprentices discovered this a, a number of years ago. And just kind of serendipitously, I noticed the placements on the body and everything and how they, and, and some of the major meridian lines that they follow are fertility lines. And about that time, this woman uh, contacted me from Vancouver. She was 41 years old. Uh, she had a very irregular menstrual cycle. She um, had a very painful menstrual cycle when it did occur. And then if she did conceive, she'd end up miscarrying the baby. And so at 41 years old, you're already considered kind of a nat risk pregnancy, a high risk pregnancy. And she really wanted to have a baby with her partner before she was, you know, too old. So she contacted me and I didn't make her any promises. I just said, you know, I'll come up there. This is what I know. I'll do the best that I can with what I know. And so we flew up there and we did uh, a few of the fertility placements on her body. And then two months later, she called me up and she said, Lane, I'm pregnant. And uh, took the baby to term. I think he's four or five years old now. But in the Filipino community, rumors started going around about fertility tattoos. And for a hot minute, I was giving out uh, fertility tattoos like they were on the clearance rack. But it, it gave us an opportunity and of course we're not tracking this per se you know we're not doing this as part of a study but just from our own observations that the majority of the women that had these fertility marks on the low end of the scale uh, their their menstrual cycles would stabilize um, their libido was enhanced and you know if they were ha trying to have babies you know they'd end up getting pregnant and so it just was um, just kind of a mind-blowing event for me to to think, you know, wow, there is something even deeper to this than than what we previously realized, and you know, I I still need to flesh this out quite a bit, of course. But uh, looking at our traditional inks, you know, to make tattooing ink, you burn a lot of wood, you collect the soot. That soot is considered light absorbing carbon. It absorbs the frequencies of light from about three hundred nanometers up to 
800 plus nanometers, and these are the beneficial wavelengths of light to our bodies. So directly actually affecting the mitochondria, which absorbs those frequencies of light, you know, your, your immunity is enhanced uh, when the mitochondria is happy, right? And ATP production is enhanced, all of that. But I don't know if there's that direct correlation between the carbon that we put into people's skin and how that might affect the cells around it. So there might be even something deeper to this than, than what we previously realized. But yeah, just exciting stuff. And so when I stumbled, well, when I stumbled across you at the Tatao Festival, Chris, I was excited about your work and still am uh, because I think that you know, one of the, the things that we really suffer under in Westernization is that we tend to be dismissive of indigenous practices and what we might look at as, you know, technologically simple or at worst primitive, so-called primitive ways of tattooing. There might be something deeper to it uh, than we previously realized. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm 100% with you and my mind is exploding with memories of, of all the studies I had uh, coming out of that, that interaction. I, I think I was a little overwhelmed when I left with all the ideas, but uh, yeah, I, I remember our conversation now and, and the fertility stuff. Uh, I don't want to take up the interview by me brainstorming with you right now. <laughs> oh, well, then let's, let's do it sometime. <laughs> but it maps right on to some of the, the write-up that I've been doing from that, which really involves this sort of cognitive uh, assessment of what's going on. And I guess what, what we would call the psychoneuroimmunological feedback between like what people are desiring, right? Fertility, mm-hmm. like this positive feedback of like, I really want this. And then some physiological thing. So those mechanisms are, are I think, understudied and we have the tools and opportunity to do that. Well, even if there's just a placebo effect, that's significant in and of itself, you know, because in a lot of our healing rituals in the Philippines, sometimes we use symbols as a focal point of intention. And that really shifts the person from feeling like they're being victimized by their illness to a place of empowerment, even mentally. And I know that we do that in our healing rituals, and it makes sense that that would be also a component in tattooing, even as just mm-hmm. a focal point of faith or intention. Yeah, hundred percent. And the idea of a placebo, I think a pop culture perception of placebo is that it's something that's not real. And the psychoneural immunological perspective is like, no, wait, it is real. Mm-hmm. They're getting a real physiological response from something that they're thinking. Right. Right. So when you say placebo, it, it is real. It just is referring to that sort of that pill model of biomedicine. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm right there with you. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, thinking about academia. Um, there is a movement around decolonizing academia. And the same seems to be the same for the tattooing industry. Um, how do you think we go about decolonizing tattooing industry? Well, well, let's, let's look at uh, how tattooing came to the modern era anyway, uh, modern, how modern, modern tattooing evolved. And I, I also keep in mind, uh, because yes, I'm in my ethnic background, I'm also European, uh, but all cultures seem to have at one time or another some form of body modification or markings. And it's important to realize that, that our modern tattooing evolved out of indigenous tattooing. But what happened is that you had Europeans take this cultural practice, strip it of all its cultural context, all of its spirituality, 
and all that is left behind is art. And that's how we see tattooing today is just art. It's just art. But really, if we want to decolonize tattooing, regardless of whatever ethnic group you come from, it's important to reintroduce those cultural nuances and spiritual aspects back into tattooing. And I see this where people are trying to do that. Even just in the regular tattoo industry, you have tattoo artists that are trying to take time to get to know the individual, find out why this representation is important to them, trying to bring in that deeper meaning. There, there does seem to be this push to understand things spiritually again. And that is, I think, a, a great way to decolonize tattooing. Uh, I've had the opportunity to tattoo people from other ethnic groups, you know, outside of the Philippines, like native people here in the United States that uh, are looking for a way to receive markings that don't come from a Western machine, for example, but they may not necessarily have practitioners anymore. And so the, they have asked me, they've asked my, my teacher, Sua Kione, for these types of markings from a so-called native source, even though it's we're not Native Americans or, or Native people of the Americas. We still do an indigenous practice. And so it, I see decolonization, again, as, as recovering those aspects of tattooing that we have lost in that uh, appropriation, I would say, of South Pacific uh, tattooing and then modifying it, creating tattoo machines. And it's funny because uh, I have so many people, when they get their markings from me, they say, this feels familiar somehow. It resonates with me on some deep level that I don't understand. And I think that is happening in general with tattooing, uh, that there is this feeling of wanting that, that, that spiritual connection again. I think that comes back to what you said before as well about um, the importance of the experience and not just looking at it clinically from the outside to you know to be able to feel something yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah definitely I, I was so struck at the Tatao festival watching uh, looking at the contrast between the rest of the festival right where everybody's trying to crank through as many clients as they can mm -hmm. in the period of time that they have and your process was the opposite it was slowed down it was taking time with the clients Oh man, I can't imagine going to a tattoo artist and having them actually ask me uh, about myself and like the tattoo and spend because everyone's on on the clock, right? Right. And so I got the sense that that you weren't actually on the clock, that you were giving a, a gift or or that you were you were almost like a priest. It was very, I want to say, soothing for me as a as an observer because of how anxious that process of rushing people through things makes me so I can easily understand what people would, would get out of, of that approach. Oh yeah. They, uh, when a person comes through for marks, there's kind of based on their ethnic background, a palette of designs that I can choose from, but which of those designs is most appropriate for them really depends on that, that one-on-one -on -one interaction, getting to know them, seeing what they're all about, and then determining which of the designs would be most beneficial for them and also representative of their of their ancestry. So yeah, we have to take it slow. Um, currently with the pandemic, it's forced me to slow down even more. I will only take one recipient a day. And sometimes we can spend hours 
discussing things or getting to know each other because, you know, like, like you mentioned, you don't go into a doctor and say, hey, doc, this is what's going on with me. And they just write you a prescription without asking any other, you know, exploratory questions. At least they shouldn't. They should. <laughs> <laughs> they might. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I, I want to get you back on. And I want to get you back on because the training thing for me personally is fascinating. And I want to hear more about your experiences with the Suluape and Suikione. But it, it'll take us another hour. So I'm going to let my co-hosts ask their burning question. And then for now, we're going to wrap. Our listeners also prefer less than a two-hour podcast yeah. for the first, uh, you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm down for that. So you're, from what we gather, you're, you're looking to change this view of Batok in the Philippines or among uh, the diaspora community of, of Filipinos and you're training, I think at least one apprentice you mentioned, can you tell us a little bit about this process and, and what your goals are here? Well, you kind of hit the nail on the head there, Mike. I, I am looking to change the, the perspective of how people look at tattooing, especially our own people, because currently in the Philippines, uh, tattooing is still, it's not part of the mainstream. It's uh, looked at as a type of subculture or deviant behavior. You know, people who have tattoos are, are criminals. Like one of my apprentices, uh, when uh, she got her first tattoo, her mom said, you know who gets tattoos? Pirates, prisoners, and whores. And, <laughs> and so she's very cheekily said to her mother, well, mom, what if I want to be a pirate prisoner whore? <laughs> I do have a, a, a number of apprentices. Uh, I have five active pr- apprentices, but because of the pandemic, some of my other apprentices are kind of in hiatus because we're not able to get together as often mm-hmm. uh, to do any training or work. Learning to tattoo this this way, you know, through hand tapping is is something that can be taught. Of course, there's there. There's time that is, needs to be taken to, you know, have some finesse with those skill sets. But really what takes the most time is them learning all the lore behind things. Yeah. So like I mentioned, this sun design on my forearm here, you know, there's volumes <laughs> that could be written about that. And maybe that's a little bit of hyperbole, but there's definitely oral an oral tradition that, uh, that is attached to it. The The number of the... The hash marks within that design are significant in and of themselves. There's five in this center part, and that is a reference to an ancestor named Aponito Lao. And that's a sorbicade for uh, that particular ancestor's tasks or feats that he does. You would more commonly know him by his Polynesian name of Maui, who we call Lumawi in the, in the Philippines. But the, the number five is significant because... In some of the traditions of Maui throughout the Pacific, uh, he is the fifth child. He is known in Maori as Maui Tikitiki and in Hawaii as uh, Maui Ki'iki'i. The fifth finger in my mother's language is the Kiki'i, which is, again, a reference to that deity or ancestor. So there's, it's just kind of informationally dense when it comes to some of these markings. There, then there's you know, the significance of where it goes on the body. So this isn't the mark of a criminal. This is a mark of somebody who 
is very dialed into the past. It has a very strong relationship with their forebears. And changing that paradigm is hard. It's easier on the di- actually in the diaspora because hmm. uh, here we have a different perspective towards tattooing, especially those of us that might live in Hawaii, for example, uh, where we see the example of our Polynesian cousins and how they perceive their tattoos. They, there isn't that much of a cultural break with them. I mean, in Hawaii, it was maybe three generations where it was sleeping hmm. uh, compared to the Philippines, where in some, among some ethnic groups, it's been extinct for centuries now. And so changing that paradigm is probably not something that's going to happen fully in my, in my time. This might be something that my apprentices or my apprentices' apprentices get to experience in the future. Something maybe similar to how the Samoans view tattooing today. Yeah, you mentioned that even Mormons that are Samoan, they still have the respect. You know, that's what we're, we're pushing for, where people perceive this differently from being a pirate prisoner whore. <laughs> that's really interesting. I, 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 I like the aspiring to be a pirate, too, because you don't hear that very often. But um, <laughs> um, it sounds like a lot, right? Like a lot to put on the shoulders of you and your apprentices, right? But the thing that struck me when you when you said that was how, when I was talking to one of the Sulawape uh, Ata, he and Paul uh, Jr. Were, were working and I would ask them questions and uh, Ata would, would go, ask the old man, because I tattoo, he's the one with the history, right? And I was like, that's funny, right? Because I just assume, you know, at first that everyone would have to know all the lore and he's like, no, I'm a technician. He's the historian over there. If you want to know all that mumbo jumbo history culture crap, go ask him, right? I don't want to talk to any anthropologists. I don't want to have to be quizzed. And I was like, oh, that's a, like, thank you for pointing that out because no one person should have to carry all the skills, all the knowledge. It, it should be distributed in a community. Right. And it sounds like that's the effort that you are endeavoring to to create is the community that can hold that knowledge again is that right yes yes um the knowledge has to be decentralized i can't be the only bearer of it um not saying that i am the only bearer of it but uh in the diaspora it's it's kind of a heavy weight to bear um one of the things that sua kione told me back when I was writing my first book, because I was discouraged. I, I actually didn't think anyone be, would be interested in this. But he said, you know, it, let's say that you get taken out of the picture lane. Um, then someone has to start from square one again with all the research that you've done. And some of the elders that I've been able to interview have passed. And it would be much more difficult for somebody coming into this to recover that again. And then Sua Kione, once I published the book, I thought, okay, my responsibility is done. I got some foundational knowledge out there for people to, to work off of. And then, uh, then uh, my teacher says to me, well, now you got to put into practice. <laughs> but uh, having apprentices is encouraging because it kind of takes the burden off of my shoulders a little bit, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I made the mistake of showing Paul... Uh, my hand poke and he so he gave me an hour to practice with and I have been too scared to uh, strap the needles on and do any anything with that it is a big responsibility <laughs> a little frightening yeah my first tattoos that I did every one uh, I started in my head I was going 
Oh shit. Oh shit. Oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> but now I'm in a place where I'm, I'm comfortable with it. I'm of course, I, you know, I want to do the best work I possibly can for everybody that comes through. But uh, yeah, it's, there's a lot of anxiety in doing the work. Mm-hmm. So we got to have you back on. There are a lot of questions that we have left on the table, but uh, we want to thank you. It's been an hour and we probably all have lives to get back to. So I'm not joking. We're going to have you back. Um, I'm totally down for that. Good. (laughs) Thank you so, so much. It's been a pleasure. I remember how much I enjoyed talking to you before and I can't wait to talk to you again. I look forward to it. Appreciate the opportunity to share a little bit of our practice thanks for listening we're on twitter at inking underscore immunity and on instagram and facebook at inking dot of dot immunity the hosts of the show are dr chris lynn and mike smetana at the university of alabama and dr becky owens at uk sunderland kira yancey is the production manager Thanks to the University of Alabama Anthropology Department for helping make this show possible. You can find our full, unedited Season 2 interviews on our Facebook page or watch them happening live on Facebook most Wednesday mornings. See you next time.